0: Well, this morning we are in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 through chapter 55, verse 13. Let's pray together. God, we ask your mercy to be upon us as we now dive into your word. Give us wisdom to see that which you would have for us. Give us insight to understand and write these truths in power upon us. Transform us through setting our eyes upon the crucified and risen Christ and setting the gospel right before us as the north star by which we make our way through this world. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord, our refuge, our rock, our strength. Amen. About six weeks ago, Nick and I went into the uh, Museum of Science, and while we were there, we went to a uh, 3D, or it might have actually been a 4D show Uh, but it was supposed to be this little 15 minute under the sea. You get the 3d glasses, you sit down, you, uh, it has like, I guess it's 40. If it has like the spritz of water and the fans blowing wind and bubbles dropping down out of the ceiling, it was quite a spectacle to behold. Uh, I thought Nick would really enjoy it, but there was only one problem. He wanted nothing to do with his 3d glasses. He didn't want to keep them on, and so it was just kind of a challenge there. And so I'm sitting there watching him, not really, because you know when you're not wearing the 3D glasses, everything on the screen is quite blurry. And so I'd look over at him, and he'd enjoy like the bubbles dropping down, but really didn't grasp everything else going on. Meanwhile, I had my glasses on, and I was enjoying the show far more than a 36-year-old probably should have. But he didn't quite understand the show because he couldn't make sense of what was happening on the screen. As Christians, if we're not careful, we can lose sight of what we should be seeing, of what we must be seeing as we seek to walk through life in obedience to Christ and following Him. In fact, if we take the glasses of the gospel off, if if we don't see those, then everything else, or if we don't look through those, everything else will look quite blurry to us. It's possible that you enjoy the the tradition of gathering for worship each sunday it's possible that you enjoy fellowships and potlucks and you generally look at the world from a more uh, a, a christian worldview and and perspective and and you kind of understand things in that world or from that perspective but you still can miss the heartbeat of what we're doing maybe you're enjoying the bubbles dropping down of being somewhat in the show But today, may we put the glasses back on that we might see the heartbeat of the gospel that gives us hope and that is the reason by which we gather together to worship week by week by week. See, what Isaiah is putting before us is that the gospel, this message, and and specifically this message of the crucified Christ, who we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12, as Neil preached for us, uh, uh, laying out the crucified Christ as, as the one who suffered in our place for our sins. What Isaiah is laying out for us is that the Christian life will seem blurry or insignificant if we aren't careful to keep the gospel before us. And so what I want to put before you is that when we truly grasp the gospel, when we truly grasp the gospel, we will be wondrously transformed and we will see God work mightily in bringing people to himself. Let me say this again. When we truly grasp the gospel, as Christians, we will be wondrously transformed and we will see God work mightily in people around us and even to the ends of the earth. Okay? But don't take my word for it. Let's see it in Isaiah 54 and 55. First, we're going to see how we are wondrously transformed by the gospel in chapter 54. You see at the beginning of chapter 54, the first exhortation to the people of Judah, after hearing the promise of the one who would be crushed for their sins in chapter 53. What is the first word of chapter 54? Sing. This sets the tone for the response of the work of Christ. But why why sing? What would cause somebody to sing? We sing about great love. We sing about euphoric feelings. We don't sing because we had a good appointment at the dentist. You don't sing as you're walking back from the mailbox, having looked at the mail and seen that you got more bills today to pay. There's something stirring within us that births song. And so let me ask you, what causes you to sing? What we'll see in chapter 54 is how the gospel produces singing in us. And the first way we sing this, we'll see three illustrations. Uh, 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 the, the barren woman given hope, the, the grieved uh, spouse uh, meeting, meeting everla- <coughs> excuse me, everlasting love, and the afflicted city being built up. So first we see this barren woman, and we see that in the gospel, our work finds complete fulfillment. In the gospel, our work finds full fi- complete fulfillment fulfillment so verse one the isaiah says "Sing, o barren one that's interesting what does he mean calling the people of judah barren in isaiah's day as well as in many instances throughout the old testament barrenness or infertility was a mark of shame it was a mark of sorrow for a woman the people of judah though they had children But in their spiritual idolatry and rejection of God, they had not birthed more worshipers of God. They were a people who, who known as worshipers of the one true God, were kind of petering out and, and drying up. Drought had come upon them and they were no longer birthing more and more worshipers of God. They had failed in the task of bringing God's salvation to the world. But Isaiah is not taunting Judah with her sinfulness here. He's taking her eyes from her own barrenness and turning her eyes to the servant of the Lord who will cause a heritage of worshipers that is far greater than she could imagine to be born. Look at this in the second part of verse 1 through verse 3. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. In verse 2, he tells them, "...enlarge the place of your tent." Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations. And will people the desolate cities. God's telling them, you might be barren now, but it's time to add, it's time to add bedrooms to the house. It's time to add additions to the tents. There are going to be more children brought in. So that naturally produces the question with us, okay, how is this going to happen? How will the offspring of the barren, barren one possess the nations and populate the desolate cities? How does a barren woman have offspring? <coughs> Excuse me. This comes about through the supernatural work of God where his son is lifted up as the beacon through whom all peoples come to him. So let me ask you, as, I, as Isaiah addresses the barren woman of Judah, Dear Christian, do you look at your life and see past unfaithfulness in sharing the gospel with others? Do you look at your life and wonder if your life has truly had any lasting spiritual impact upon your children or upon your grandchildren? Maybe every once in a while you hear a piercing word or a penetrating conversation with them where your relative spiritual immaturity is revealed. And you kind of wonder, hmm... I don't know how much I've accomplished here. Perhaps you feel as if your walk as a Christian has not been a sprint, but has actually kind of been more of a crawl across broken glass. It's very possible that you look back upon your life and you see not great spiritual triumphs, but spiritual laziness or trifling in unimportant matters. So how does the barren one start to sing? Well, she sees the work of God in his supernatural work in holding up the crucified Christ as the one to whom all look. Now look at a second exhortation here in verse 4. The first was to sing, the second is to fear not. We're exhorted to to fear not for the ones who I understand how this ties together. For those who who maybe you carry around these these this haunting feeling of past unfaithfulness to the Lord. Things torment you with reminders of your shame, your disgrace, your reproach. Feeling, okay, I know I'm a Christian. I know that I'm trusting in Christ, but I still feel so unworthy. I still feel as if I I, I shouldn't be here. The Lord tells His people, fear not, for you will remember this no more. Look at that. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. God is not speaking to a people who have, 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 are, are the spiritual elite, who are the, 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 the Christian all-stars. He's speaking to people who look back upon their life and their service to Him and think there's a lot that's missing here. But what is He holding up for them? He's holding up for them the suffering, crucified Christ as the one to whom their hearts can look and the one in whom they can trust. And so where do we bring our sins but we lay them down at the cross and in the cross of Christ we are welcomed into the arms of God. Our hope for making sense of our spiritual barrenness is found nowhere else but in the grip of His grace that is grounded in the cross. So he holds up for us in verse 5. He says that his resolve to accomplish his divine purposes will supersede any spiritual fits and stops and starts and blunders and crashes and and, and highs and lows that we can muster. For he says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. One time I, I... saw an image of a, of a of a little very small little girl who was for some reason uh being invited to help conduct this large massive orchestra and she got up there and 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 I don't know is it called a wand I don't know what it's called but she kind of just was like doing the and very clearly not doing the formal conducting whatever and but the orchestra is playing just a a fantastic I don't know what, a, one of Beethoven's uh, symphonies or whatever. Uh, and, and behind her was the actual conductor conducting. And that is us. We feel as, okay, I can't do that. There, there's, there, well, I don't know what to muster here. I don't know how to, how to carry on with all of this shame and baggage that I carry. Uh, re- recognizing my past fallenness, my past mistakes as I as, as, as sought to serve Christ. And what we see is that in the cross, Christ is conducted at all. Christ has accomplished the work that he would have for the glory of his name. And so he fulfills our weak and our feeble ministries and gives us hope that where we come up short, where we don't have the words to say, or where we feel as if we're so feeble in trying trying to share the hope of the gospel with others, that Christ fills in all of the gaps and uses our feeble words for his great purposes. So we see Christ completes or fulfills our ministry. Secondly, in the gospel, we find that our grief finds everlasting love. We now move from the illustration of a barren woman to a grieved, unfaithful wife. We have to be careful here. We have to be honest here. When we think of ourselves and our walks or our lives as Christians, we more readily think, yeah, I haven't quite been the Christian that I need to be. There's ways I could do better, but yeah, I've messed up some, but okay, thankfully God will clean it up. And we say it with a sense of, hey, don't don't beat yourself up. Don't don't go too hard on yourself, which is true. But the second great wonderful reversal of the gospel is that we who were spiritually adulterous against God find that we are brought back to him. And so this hits us firmly, not in our weakness, but in our sinfulness. Throughout the, the prophets and throughout various places in the old testament the people of god and their sinful idolatry and departing from their god who had redeemed them and who have set them apart they're, they're they're described as like an adulterous bride or wife but what we have to see here as we strive to turn around and hope in our god hope in christ who has died on the cross for us what we have to see is what is not discussed here the sins of israel are not harped on God does not unroll a CVS receipt length of all of the sins of Israel and say, all right, it's time for us to have a reckoning. I'll handle this. That one. Okay, that one will be go to Christ on the cross, but you're responsible for this one, this one. okay, I got this one. You got that one. No, he doesn't divide them all up, but he holds them all and nails them all to the cross with Christ. The death of Jesus on the cross is God's way of telling us that nothing, not even our own spiritual adultery, will separate us from His love. And I want you to see something incredible here. Look at verse 9. God says, or Isaiah said, well, God says through Isaiah, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. God hearkens back to the days of Noah and the flood. And I say, okay, so why are you going here? Well, if you remember back, uh, let's think back here. If you remember the account of Noah and the flood from the book of Genesis, the, the people of the earth were sinful and wicked, and God was going to bring judgment upon them for their sinful wickedness. He was going to flood the earth. But he sets apart Noah and his family. They build an ark by which they literally float through. They sail through the waters of God's wrath, and they are brought to safe harbor, having been delivered from his judgment. And now on the heels of Isaiah 53, what God is saying to you and to me is for those of us whom we have cast ourselves into the arms of the crucified Savior, we have come to him in faith and repentance and belief. Christ Jesus is the ark by which we sail through the waters of his wrath. And in Christ and in His finished work, we reach that safe harbor where we disembark from that water, from those waters and we enter into Emmanuel's land where though we still sin, the waters of judgment have already passed over. But they have not passed over us. They have passed over another. And this is what Isaiah is wanting his audience, the people of Judah, to see. He tells them in verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And here's what we fail to grasp sometimes. Pause right now and think about the worst transgressions of your life. Now think about the worst things that you have thought. The worst meditations of your heart. The things that you would never even talk about with your spouse. The things that you would never even talk about with your parent. The things that if somebody else were able to read your mind, you would be in terror at thinking what they might think of you. What the cross shows us, what Isaiah wants us to see, is that God sees and knows all of these. And they are all nailed to the cross with Christ. He establishes through Christ a covenant of peace that shall not be removed. So in the Gospel, the grieved find everlasting love. In the gospel, our work finds sure fulfillment. And thirdly, in the gospel, our despair finds sure hope. In verses 11 to 17, this third illustration of God's wondrously transforming work towards His people is a city that is rebuilt from destruction to spectacular beauty. God says in verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate. And your gates of carbuncles. And all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. Where previously the people of God found that yes, their past mistakes and their sorrows and their shame would find grace in this crucified servant of the Lord. They might be in a position where you might find yourself today. Where you say, okay, I know my past sins, I know all of that's atoned for, but now I still look towards a very daunting future. That I don't know how to make sense of it. What God says is, okay, we've considered your past, now we're going to consider your future. The city that had been destroyed and lie in rubble, the people would be rebuilt by the mercy and the might of God. And this would not just be a physical rebuilding, but it was first and foremost promised to be a spiritual rebuilding. A spiritual new birth as the people of God are built up through this crucified servant of the Lord. And as Christ builds His church, we find His sweet care through the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling His people. We find His tender kindnesses through the fellowship of the body. And we find His faithful word as the means by which He builds His people up. And then look at the promises that God makes. Okay, verses 11 and 12, He promises to rebuild the city. But then, going on, in verses 14 to 17, He promises to rebuild the people. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Look down at verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Do you see this? No weapon, no tongue. No weapons, no words. None of them will be able to destroy you. And even the most dire, difficult places to follow Jesus Christ. Places like North Korea. Places like Saudi Arabia. Somalia. Wherever it may be. Even if death were to come upon the Christian for the name of Christ. What God holds up for them is that nothing can separate you from My love. And though your body and your life may be taken from you, I am with you and you will come to Me and nothing will be able to destroy your soul because of the work of Christ. And then perhaps a little more pointedly for us, Where we don't necessarily have to fear here any weapons that are waged against us, but maybe we might worry a little more about words that would be cast against us. The second part of that verse you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Wherever words are lashed out against the church, no matter the charges of being out of step with our culture or backwards in our beliefs, God tells us these will not destroy the church. He is your righteousness. In fact, you might see at the end of verse 17 there, and their vindication is from me, and you might have a little footnote there that says righteousness at the bottom of the page if you're looking actually in your Bible. I actually think I love the ESV translation, but I think right here the, the better translation of this word is actually righteousness. So where vindication is there, maybe mark it out and put righteousness Your righteousness is from the Lord. When you are marked as unrighteous for the name of Christ in the eyes of the world around you, and they come for you with pitchforks and torches, or with harsh words and castigation, your righteousness rests in Christ and nothing can take you away from Him. And that is the hope that He holds up for the people who would be rebuilt looking towards the future. A few weeks ago, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, made a visit to Kiev, Ukraine. Maybe you saw the pictures and the videos of it. And he went to visit, and as a as a as a sign of the people of the UK's uh, uh, commitment and togetherness with the people of Ukraine, and meeting with President Zelensky and his administration, and the images, the the videos, the pictures were were were, were haunting. In that, here is this Western head of state touring through, walking through the streets of Kiev with, with bombed out buildings around him and, 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 and visible signs of horrific warfare all around. And he's walking through it with the president of Ukraine. Now, of course, he's walking through it with a very significant military presence around him working for his protection. Sometimes we feel as if we're walking through bombed out, war-torn ways in which we're trying to navigate life. And what Isaiah wants to show us is that in the midst of the bombed out, war-torn hardships and and trials that we may face for following Christ and for for walking in obedience to Him, nothing less than the crucified Christ is the one who is walking right beside us ensuring our protection. And ensuring that any charge that is lobbed our way is wiped out, eradicated, and, and, and cast upon Him and on Him alone. And He atoned for it in His cross. And so what Isaiah wants us to see here in chapter 54 is the way in which we find fulfillment of our work. The way in which we find love in our grief. And the way in which we find hope when we are worn out. And in this, we start to grasp all of this comes through Christ and His cross and we keep the lens of the Gospel before us. And then we move on to seeing not only how this wonderfully transforms us, but how it transforms our world as well. And we see that in chapter 55. In chapter 55, we see the second note here the world is being wondrously transformed by the gospel. Remember, Isaiah 54 1 began with an exhortation to do what? To sing. Now, if you look at Isaiah 55 1, it begins with an exhortation for those who hear this message to do what? To come and feast. God told how He would transform His people. Now He shows how He'll do it uh, in Isaiah 55. As one commentator noted, in Isaiah 54, there's the exhortation to enlarge the tents. And we see in Isaiah 55 how God will bring people into those tents. So in this Isaiah 55, we see two invitations. One with an expectation, one with an explanation. So he says in verse 1, look at this. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price four times in verse one, this exhortation to come the author offer of food and drink for all who are hungry and thirst. This imagery is of people scattering around, hurrying about, trying to find food, but never able to do so. Or maybe they get they they munch on a few bites, but then they're just hungry again a few minutes later. And they can never fulfill that hunger of their soul, that hunger of their heart. But now, Isaiah lifts up the suffering servant, Christ on the cross, and the offer of God is to come and find and feast on the bread of life. Do you see the implication here that everyone is feasting, hungering, eating on something? And the offer of the Gospel is not to sink your teeth literally into Christ, but sink your heart into the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is an invitation that we who are Christians have responded to and we continue to be nourished by Christ day by day. And this is an invitation that we hold forth for others that we know and for the whole world to come to Jesus Christ. Come and live. Eat and be satisfied. Now you might hear this and you might think, now that is really fascinating that you guys believe that stuff. May I let you in on something? Christianity makes for a terrible menu option on the buffet of life. Yeah, you heard me right when I said that. If you're walking through the buffet and loading up your tray with all sorts of things you want to try, you save off a little side note there for Christianity, you put it on there, it makes it ruins the rest of the meal. Well, how so, Stephen? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, the reason is, is that you can't eat it halfway just as Christ was not crucified halfway. It's like if you try to brush your teeth and then you drink orange juice. The orange juice tastes terrible. It actually sours everything else. You may have tried that in your own life where you try to stick to some of the Bible or you see its importance over you, but also you kind of keep it a safe arm's distance because you don't want to get too close. You want to kind of keep it measured, keep it in its spot, keep it boxed in, don't don't disrupt anything. It's a terrible menu option because the demands of Christ are all or not. If you recognize that you don't come to Him and pick and choose, but you actually come to Him and receive new life through the Gospel, your eyes are opened, your heart is awakened to see Jesus Christ and all that He has done as directly impacting impacting you. And you cannot help but be transformed by Him. When you see that God took on human flesh and saw something so wrong in us that it demanded His death, And He fulfilled that death, not because He had to, but because He set apart His love towards us. And nothing was going to deter Him. And you see that He now invites you to come to Himself and eat and live and feast on Him. And you start to see that response to Him is totally not possible if you're just going to put Him on the side of the plate of your life. He demands that He be your only meal the only thing in which your heart trusts, the only thing on which your heart is nourished. Look at this reading on in verses 2 and 3. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. For the Christian, this is a great way to enter into evangelistic conversations with those around us. Listen to the hurts, to the griefs, to the fears, to the worries, to the letdowns, to the confusions of those around you. And after you've listened to them for a while and shown them your love and your care and your heart for them, Offer them Christ who has brought comfort and mercy to you. The question is not, do you believe in God or not? But the question is, what are you eating to live? Where do you find yourself let down and unsatisfied with the offerings of this world and this life? Wherever it is, the gospel meets us in our terrible anxiety and speaks a word of hope that Christ is near to his people and nothing can lead you away from him. The gospel meets us in our physical suffering and speaks a word of promise of resurrection. The gospel meets us in our in our in our sense of not measuring up, in our sense of not being good enough, in our sense of always feeling like something is wrong with us. And it meets us with a crucified Savior who says, I invite you to come to me and I will make you whole. And dear Christian, take confidence in the power of God as we faithfully witness of the crucified Christ who offers all to come to Him and live. Verse 5, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Why? Because of the cleverness of your words? Because of the keen insight that you have speaking into situations and cultures? Because you 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 caused somebody to stumble with with something that you said that they couldn't quite uh, uh, respond to or couldn't couldn't defeat in in some kind of form of argument, no. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Do you see the promises there? God is proving faithful in peoples from all nations coming to Christ, and we share the gospel with this confidence in, in mind. Make no mistake, evangelism is tough in our community. I used to serve at a church plant in downtown Lowell. Downtown Lowell is a little different than Situate. We would regularly uh, uh, be able to do outreaches where, uh, or, or just have a ministry where we would care for those in our community and help buy them groceries and help meet their most basic needs, sometimes help with housing. Where we were in downtown Lowell was a rough place. One time we didn't think we were going to be able to have church one Sunday morning because a guy was murdered in front of our building that morning. It was a crime scene. Thankfully, they cleared the crime scene before church started and we were able to worship. But that's different than situate. How do you communicate a need? Like, how do you say you need bread to a people whose cupboards are full? Let us resolve, brothers and sisters, based on Isaiah 55, that just because those around us have full cupboards, full refrigerators, let us resolve that this does not mean that their hunger is being satisfied. Let us carefully listen. Let us carefully get to know them. And let us speak to them the hope of the living bread. The bread of life, Christ Himself. And now let us conclude by seeing one aspect of what we hope for and what we share with those who need to hear of the hope of Christ. Verses 6-13, to Now those who hear this invitation to come and feast, come and live, they must hear this warning that the meal will not always be available. Eventually the door closes, the restaurant shuts down, the meal is taken off the table. You see that in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Here's what this means. This invitation is not to intellectually assent to Christ or to the teachings of Christianity. It's to come to him and feast and live. I know John Tyler was inaugurated as president of the United States on April 6th, 1841. That is a fact that I believe is true. But I think it's safe to say that my life isn't going to be no different today, tomorrow, this month, this year. My life is going to be no different by the knowledge of the fact that John Tyler was inaugurated on April 6th, 1841. 1841. Let us know that Jesus died, that He was raised again, but He does not call us to intellectually assent to it like we do historical facts when a president was inaugurated or anything else. This invitation to come to Christ is an invitation and a demand to walk away from yourself. To recognize that He knows better than you. That He has claim over our plans for ourselves. He has claim over our passions, our desires. He has claim over our checkbooks and our calendars. He is not a sage whose advice we seek. He is our Lord whom we surrender under. He tells us this in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He throws open the doors of His mercy and beckons any who will to come to Him and live. But He beckons them that if you're going to come and live on Me, you will live by My power and by My Word. Is this the Jesus that we sing about? this the Jesus that tells you to fear not. We don't sing about John Tyler week by week because we don't need John Tyler week by week. We sing of Jesus week by week because we need the crucified Lord day by day by day by day by moment by moment. We need to be reminded that in Christ we have the bread of life that we can eat of and know that we are safe and secure and this life and the life to come. We sing of Jesus because He is our life. He makes a terrible hobby, but a supreme Lord. And what is our lifeblood when we sit down at this feast of grace? Well, it's His Word. Verses 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose for I, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The people of Judah, understand this. Understand a little of their cultural context, their background. They knew that Egypt was nourished by the Nile River. They knew that Mesopotamia was nourished by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. They lived in a place called Canaan. where Canaan didn't have any rivers flowing through them. They were reliant upon the rainfall from heaven. The way that God nourishes people is through His Word, but the Word of God will only work in the power of God over us when we recognize and take to heart that His ways are higher than ours, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. How often do we go to the Word and we seek some kind of fortune cookie promise that we'll have a good day, but we don't live by feasting on it, allowing it to make us into what God would have us to be? Next time the rain falls, ask yourself, is this rain nourishing the ground? Yes. Yes. Is it watering the plants that I planted this spring? Yes. As you open up God's Word, you may not feel nourished, but what we see is that you will be nourished. I heard a story once of a man who a a friend of his was jokingly antagonizing him about going to church every Sunday for like 30 years. The friend asked him if he remembered every sermon or even most sermons that he heard. The man said, well, no. So the friend said, well, what's the point? Why have you been going all these years? The man said, well, I also don't remember what I had for supper many of the last 30 years, but I know that nourished me and kept me alive. The Word of God is how God ministers, how He waters, how He nourishes us. And look at the promised expectation for all who feast on the Lord, for all who are looking to Him for hope, for all who are looking to Him for eternal promises and security. Look at the expectation of verses 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy, And be led forth in peace. The mountains, the hills before you. Shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field. Shall clap their hands. And look at verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. Eventually the love of God. That has set upon us. Will make this whole world new. The invitation of christ to trust him entirely is to come to him it, it's an invitation to embrace the promises of tomorrow today this isn't something that we believe and it's our own little plan for the world what we read in verses 12 and 13 are the newspaper headlines from the future it's the message of how the gospel will remake through christ it is all-encompassing including the created order peter Craft invites us to put on 3D glasses of the gospel. And see our today and tomorrow with vivid brightness and boldness. He writes, now suppose both hell, death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future. And you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything. Your sin, your smallness, your stupidity even. In spite of all of this, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven and eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less. A millionaire fearing just a scratch on a penny. Brothers and sisters, when we truly grasp the Gospel, we will be wondrously transformed. And we will see God work mightily in bringing people to Himself. Let's pray. God, help us to grasp the crucified Christ. The promises of the Gospel that are ours through Him. Give joy to our hearts. Give confidence to our souls. Give peace to our minds. Give grace to our persons. Help us to take joy in Christ and the promises of the Gospel that are ours today and the hope of the Gospel that sustains us for tomorrow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.